Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Perhaps more than ever, government intersects across many aspects of our lives. Most Americans may not think about the U.S. federal government every day, but when they need government services, they expect it to work. As technology, e-commerce, and customer needs have evolved, our government institutions must also evolve. Healthy organizations are designed to change and adapt. It is unacceptable that the U.S. federal government still operates with many capabilities and processes established in the mid-20th century, if not earlier. Despite dramatic changes in technology, society, and the needs of the American people in the digital age. The President's Management Agenda, PMA, lays out a long-term vision for modernizing the U.S. federal government to meet the mission, service, and stewardship realities of the 21st century. What are the management priorities for the U.S. federal government? How is the Trump administration tackling human capital challenges facing government today? And what are the Government Effectiveness Advanced Research Centers? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Margaret Weikert, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, and also joining our conversation from IBM is Andrew Fairbanks. Margaret, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Michael. So let's start out with some context before we delve into your portfolio. What is the mission of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, and how does the management and budget side work to support the president's agenda? So that's a great question. Uh, the alphabet soup of Washington, <laughs> I think, confuses a lot of people. But the Office of Management and Budget is the primary focus of administration for the presidency across the executive branch. And that includes the president's budget, which is perhaps the best known part of what OMB does. But it also includes the policy objectives, regulatory agenda, as well as administration of back office functions like finance, accounting, IT, HR, procurement. So um, I'd like to transition to your specific role within OMB. What are your duties and responsibilities as deputy director of management? And perhaps you could tell us about your portfolio and what fits in it. Sure. So uh, I lead the M side, so the management side of OMB, and that includes the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, where we just got a new administrator, Senate-confirmed administrator. Uh, we have the Office of Federal Financial Management, which is led by the federal controller, and we're looking to uh, fill that role, which is also a Senate-confirmed role. We have the Office of the Federal CIO, Suzette Kent, uh, and a team that focuses on technology and government. And last but not least, we have uh, two additional organizations. One is the U.S. Digital Service, which does the sort of IT firefighting for government. And then we also have the Office of Performance and Personnel Management, which focuses on performance policy, measurement in government, strategy, as well as all of the personnel and HR policy. 
As you just mentioned, along with your your role uh, within OMB, you're ac- actually serving as the active director of um, OPM as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you juggle those two roles and how those two roles complement each other? So one of the things that uh, is critical in working on both of those two roles is that fundamentally it's critical to remember that everything in the executive branch that OMB, OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, and the General Services Administration, GSA, do is effectively back office functions for all of government. So those three agencies all have a cross-agency focus. So working in two of those three allows me to look uh, end-to-end, if you'd like, around how we're serving other agencies. And the personnel function is something I look at strategically in my OMB role and much more operationally in my Office of Personnel Management role. And what are some of those top strategic priorities that you're looking at from an overall personnel strategy across that continuum? So the major issues that we're dealing with uh, have to do with getting the right people in the right jobs at the right time in order to focus on mission, service, and stewardship. So I think sometimes when we talk about personnel management, we get lost in the mechanics of getting people in and out of government or who's in what job, but we forget why we're all here to begin with, which is to serve the missions that the American people want us uh, to serve, whether they're defense missions or criminal justice missions or housing or uh, space exploration missions. The goal is to actually get the people within the context of merit systems principles, but the right people to do the job. So regarding both your positions... Um, your leadership positions. What are some of the top management challenges or challenges that you're facing, and how have you sought to address those challenges? So the biggest challenge that runs through all of the activities that I've looked at in both of my roles relates to a siloed orientation and a very function-specific orientation. And so there are silos between agencies that have lots of opportunity for optimization. And I think a lot of deputy directors for management before me have looked at optimization across agencies. The thing I think I've seen the most uh, need for additional focus is functional silos. And what I mean by that is IT modernization, everyone knows is a major priority in government. A lot of folks, though, didn't realize how interconnected The issues were around how do you actually find the financing for your IT modernization problems. So OFFN and our our financial working capital orientation is a critical part of getting IT projects off the ground. People are another critical issue where IT modernization has run aground because we didn't have the right people with the right skills to meet the mission needs or we weren't able to move them around agilely enough. And so it's really the the integration across functions. Uh, Procurement is another thing. We spend one of our biggest line items in our contracting pool is people. So hiring people to fit very niche skills in government or having augmentation of skills, that's something that procurement brings to the table. So that's a place where pulling all those threads together and focusing on 
IT focusing on what we need to do with data and focusing on what we need to do with people pull together as three drivers we have to look at in concert. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm sure when you took the job at OMB, you weren't thinking you are going to do two jobs. But what is what, tell us about your career path. Sure. Uh, so I have served in a really diverse set of organizations over the course of my career, nonprofits, private sector firms. I've uh, worked for tech companies, banks. I've started a, a tech company. Uh, sold that to a Fortune 500 technology company. Uh, but I've also worked for not-for-profits and consulting firms. And the thread that runs through everything that I have done is the orientation around making change happen in ways that benefit and make people's lives better. So while it might seem a little strange that I came to government, to people who know me and know what really motivates me, that is the common theme, regardless of whether I've worked at a bank or a startup IT company. And the opportunity in government is profound to make a difference, to, to put the skills I have in back office optimization, the kinds of things that bore a lot of people to tears. They don't bore me. They, they're the kind of complex business system challenges that are incredibly interesting to me, and I've been able to find many like-minded people both in government and in the community broadly that supports government who have similar ideas and looking for dynamism around how do we bring new approaches, how do we bring new, not just technologies themselves, but the processes, the tools, the uh, culture that actually makes them successful. How, how do you think your your experience in the private sector help prepare you for your leadership role now in public service? So I think the results orientation and the reality that there is always a potential solution if you just keep looking have been very helpful. So one of my observations about Washington, it's it's a, a city that's framed around the rule of law, which is a great thing. But it's also framed around how lawyers think. Mm -hmm. And lawyers aren't necessarily out-of-the-box thinkers. They're inherently in-the-box thinkers, which is good. You want your lawyers to be in-the-box thinkers. What you need leaders, though, in government is constantly ask questions about how might we achieve this same objective within the construct of existing law or within the construct of new legislation that we might propose, how do we bring new thinking to the table? How do we really internalize, see changes that are happening in the private sector and apply them to a world that isn't about profit and loss? It's about mission, service, and stewardship. What are some of the techniques you've been using to sort of try to break through in that change management perspective in terms of trying to inspire out-of-the-box thinking or creativity within those boundaries that you mentioned? So I have used a range of, of uh, tools, but the how might we is the one that I probably use the most. Because there are so, so many folks who have been accustomed to being asked questions that are about what are we allowed to do versus what might we do and how might we 
find ways to get that done. Simply asking different questions has led people to get energized and to free people up to say, if we run down a path and we find out we're not able to do it that way, what's the next way and the next way and the next way? And oh, by the way, let's document all of those paths as we do that. So we're literally being systems-oriented scientists Mm -hmm. and we're testing hypotheses and we're running them down and we're documenting them and a test that leads to a dead end is not a failure. Mm If you document it and clarify, well, that didn't work, but what else might that have inspired? Given your private sector experience, your current public sector service, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? And perhaps you can share with us some of the leadership principles you follow as you lead. I think that's a great question, and I'm constantly looking at leadership models. The leadership model that I find is most helpful to me personally and and has been throughout my career, but is particularly helpful here in government, is the notion of servant leadership. That if I am leading with a clear superordinate goal around a higher purpose, and in the case of government, you can't find more higher purposes uh, around the things we're doing to protect life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, So I start with that mission notion reinforced by service and stewardship, and I try to use examples of how people are expecting something really strong. And when people have challenges that make them feel that they can't go forward, I also like to look at history to say, where have we been as a country or as a people that felt like this, and what challenges have we faced? So people use NASA and the the moonshot frequently, but there are a lot of other examples around places where, you know, we've faced challenges. One of the ones I, I thought a lot about this year was a lot of people said we faced the largest, longest um, lapse in appropriations from Congress to the executive branch. And I kind of think it's not true because George Washington (laughs) didn't get paid to fund the Continental Army through a very significant portion (laughs) of our actual active conflict. So we've been having these same types of funding battles since before our republic was, you know, had a constitution and we found a way forward. You know, a lot of people would joke uh, he didn't have illegal augmentation as a law to deal with. Um, But I think we probably would have figured that one out, too. What are the key management priorities for the U.S. federal government? We will ask Margaret Weikert, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Margaret Weikert, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget. And also joining us from IBM is Andrew Fairbanks. So, Margaret, I'd like to take some time to kind of get a a sense of the administration's long-term strategic vision. 
for modernizing and transforming the federal government to do something that you alluded to earlier, which is to improve the agency's abilities to deliver on mission outcomes, to provide excellent uh, service to the American people, and to be, I think you use the term, effective stewards. Um, so what is that vision? And perhaps it's sort of an overview of the, the PMA of sorts. So when we started thinking about the vision for modernization in the 21st century, we started with a view of our customers and the citizens we're serving and the services we're trying to provide. And we looked at what are they expecting us to do? And do they think we're doing a good job? And trust in government is at an all-time low. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to look at the elements of that and get a fact base to say, what aren't we doing that the American people expect us to be doing? And we looked at specific functions. And we said, where do Americans think we're doing a good job? And where are we failing? And how might we address those things? And fundamentally, the places where we're failing relate to service delivery and relate to how we are able to move and change and adapt according to the different desires and, and policy objectives. And so what what the root causes underneath why we're not very adaptable is we effectively institutionalized how we do government mm-hmm. around a business model that was about fighting the Cold War. And many of the actual vehicles that we use in government date to the 50s, 60s, 70s, where the paradigm was about a constant adversary and a relatively uh, stable environment in which you would operate. And so there weren't the notions of what the jobs are changing every few years. Many of the jobs we can't fill today, nobody could have conceived of even 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. How we think about acquisition in a world where we have online marketplaces that provide you real-time information about both prices of new activity or new purchases as well as aftermarket for all of those same things. Our procurement policies effectively were trying to create fairness in a world without markets. In a world with markets and visible always on real-time global markets, you know, the notions of fairness are different. Same thing with equity in pay. In order to figure out what the market Um, fair pay for a specific role was. 60 years ago, there were all these processes put in place. Today, you go to Glassdoor, Mm -hmm. you Google it, you can figure out what a fair compensation package is. And so in that environment, there's a whole lot that the American people are expecting that would be different. And we need to meet those expectations. What are some of your preliminary ideas around how those models should change to adjust to that changing reality? So in the president's management agenda, we actually outline 14 specific cross-agency priority goals that get into a fair amount of detail on each of the things that we think need to change, Uh, the top three being IT modernization, data accountability and transparency, and people in the workforce. And under each one of those, we have a list of priorities. And if you want to go to performance.gov, you can actually find sort of chapter and verse with all of the detail around that at a very granular level where we update it quarterly, how we're tracking 
across government on those events. But IT modernization is, is certainly at the top of the list. And as I mentioned, the connections between IT procurement, financial management, and people are critical success factors that we are adding into all of our IT modernization goals. So we're not just looking at systems, we're also looking at business systems. You mentioned IT modernization as one of those top three priorities. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the types of, of changes you're addressing, particularly with all the recent focus on, on security, data privacy, uh, recent breaches, high-profile breaches. What are, types, what are some of the changes you're trying to drive into how the government procures and manages IT systems? So we started with the IT modernization plan at the beginning of the administration, which was a list of 52 very near-term activities that we needed to essentially just ensure a baseline for cybersecurity and basic IT hygiene. We completed all those on time before the requisite date. So that was kicked off in 2017 and completed by the end of 2018. Following on from that, a broader strategy uh, set that includes our cloud strategy, cloud migration, strategies around sharing quality services, strategies around data and how we think about data, how we think about data centers, as well as a number of other vehicles that we've put in place to help execute on this, things like the Centers of Excellence, things like the Technology Modernization Fund, and probably more important, managing government technology act facilities around getting working capital funds up and running. There's still some technical fixes needed to get more agencies able to take advantage of that. But those are things that we've been running down with a goal to really ensuring that we're well positioned to pursue IT modernization. One of the areas I often hear people in the industry talk about, too, that impedes the efficiency is, is the whole clearance process and the ability, both the speed with which uh, people are able to secure clearances as well as the portability of them across agencies. Are you working on any issues on, on that topic to try to streamline getting the right people to the right place at the right time? Absolutely. So this has long been a challenge in the federal government, and it affects not only federal workers, but also the broader uh, contracting community that supports us. And there was probably about less than 18 months ago a very notable backlog of background investigations that was up in the 720-some-odd thousand backlog. Uh, we're currently down to something like 365,000 cases in backlog, and our steady state objective by the end of the year is 200,000 backlog, which is about what we think is the right run rate. A number of things we're doing there. We've made some policy changes looking at when we review low-risk files, how frequently, as well as we put more resources toward it and are looking at IT modernization improvements to some of the automation activities that can support that mission. In addition, we are investing a significant amount of time across the executive branch looking at the future of background investigations through a program called a Trusted Workforce 2.0 and uh, working to do a lot more continuous monitoring. So there's less upfront um, focus. Uh, we would still do the upfront reviews, but there'll be more use of electronic and, and 
data, continuous monitoring activities to drill down on higher risk. Getting back to the uh, IT modernization um, for a bit, I know one of the tools that um, you all have created to assist here is the Technology Modernization Fund. Um, what has been done and what is the status of, of that fund to support these initiatives? Uh, so this was a great uh, opportunity to showcase ways of work and the type of projects that may be difficult to get funded. More importantly, however, it created a toll gate process that allows a leading group of people to weigh in before projects start to help dimensionalize those projects and actually componentize them so they have a higher likelihood of succeeding. And the fiscal year funding of $100 million, followed by $25 million in uh, 2019, has enabled us to fund projects at USDA, at HUD, at GSA, and a few other uh, locations that are really taking root. One of the earliest projects was the Farmers.gov project. Uh, USDA it was well known as one of the laggards in terms of the age of the technology and lack of sophistication, and they have gone an incredible way towards modernizing their core infrastructure and becoming much more service-oriented to support farmers, producers, and ranchers across the country. Um, we put in, because we believe this is important, a budget request for $150 million in the 2020 budget. Uh, the last mark I saw, I think, was in the realm of $35 million from the House. Uh, obviously, the budget hasn't been finalized, so we're hoping that number will come up. But unlike uh, there have been a few folks commenting about the demise of the fund, the entire notion of the fund was designed to have payback. And so we won't need new funds mm -hmm. in perpetuity to keep the fund up and running. And some of the earlier fund proposals are starting to be set towards repayment. And if you want more information on that, there's actually a website. If you Google Technology Modernization Fund, you can go on and look at that. As we move into the IT modernization, I know another area that agencies are focusing on is how they tap into the vast amount of data that's available to them to really use it as a strategic asset uh, to drive more effective government and, and more transparent government. Um, what's the status um, of the cross-agency priority goal around leveraging data as a strategic asset? So you'll uh, be pleased to know that we announced the data strategy about a month ago, I think, and uh, it included a broad vision for what we need to do in government around data, and it includes the starting point around data governance, and uh, coincidentally, the timing around the establishment of Chief Data Officers Council has just come online. We've just passed the deadline for designation of participants in that council, and we're working to stand that up. Uh, so governance is a key element around data, and not only will the council facilitate activities across agencies, but I think most people in figuring out who they want to designate as chief data officers have realized that the question of data needs to include many people within an agency, from the financial 
um, management office, from the personnel office, from the procurement office, as well as from the statistical and evidence perspective, and then definitely in the IT realm, data and data structure and how we actually tag data, the hygiene of data, metadata is an important part of the IT investments we need to make. So that's another part of the strategy. And it's only when you've got those in place that you can really go to the place everybody wants to go, which is around using the data, whether it's through AI um, or advanced analytics, and then ultimately to commercialization of data. So we have a lot of investment in in basically structuring our data and ensuring that it's well positioned to both do the, the, the work we need it to do for us in the 21st century, but also to commercialize it and make it available more broadly. Many of the services that citizens receive are inherently span agencies as well. What are you doing within the context of that initiative for interoperability of data across agencies and, and commonality across agencies so that we can deliver those services in a more effective and integrated manner. So that's one of the key strategies uh, outlined in the um, the data strategy that talks about standards and talks about our position in making data interoperable and including all of the elements that you would expect to have around a robust, mature data set, metadata, good tagging, good structures, um, TBM, the process of ensuring that we structure data taxonomy in a way that is uh, clear and robust. Those are all elements of things that we're working on as part of the data strategy. The other thing you're working on is um taking some recognition for folks that make the government work. And I'd mm-hmm. like to transition to an initiative you started, the Gears of Government Awards. Um, would you tell us more about this, but t- particularly how does this process identify and highlight uh, the less seen positions that keep government going? So th- I'm really excited about this program, and we wanted it to really leverage the the gear analogy that we use broadly in the president's management agenda, but more importantly, the heart and soul of how things actually work in government often includes people who are not in the frontline mission, but are in mission support activities that make it possible for the astronauts to go into space, make it possible for the firefighters to get where they need to go. You know, nobody thinks about all of the IT systems that help us use AI to figure out where fires might be or look at endangered species and look at weather patterns that NOAA provides to identify how changing temperatures in the water might affect endangered species. So recognizing people who are doing great things with IT, with data, with people, with procurement is something that is really, really powerful because many more people are focused on those types of tasks, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be the doctor that wins the Nobel Prize. They're not going to be the person that you know is front and center fighting the fire, but they are absolutely critical to the life of that mission and its success. Is there a way, if, you're, if our listeners are interested, to find out who they are? 
Yes, absolutely. So if you Google gears of government, I'm pretty sure we'll be the only thing you find. Um, but you can also go to performance.gov, and any of the things I've talked about today are available on performance.gov, which is a great site that translates some fairly lofty goals into some pretty tactical plans. And the thing I like the best about it is it actually includes the names of the people who are leading these activities. So almost starting there, we're creating accountability for outcomes and and for work products. And so if you want to learn more, every agency of the CFO Act agencies had a program around gears of government, and that escalates up to the presidential level. So it was a really widespread way to recognize people. And I got to go to uh, several of the uh, agency activities as well as as the uh, presidential one. And it, it was really, really rewarding. The presidential one was in the White House. Um, but I got to go to a lovely one at EPA. I got to go to one at General Services Administration. Um, and it was really great to meet the people who are supporting our missions. No pun intended, but staying in gear. Um, what are your efforts to establish the Government Effectiveness Advanced Research Centers? Could you give us a status on what's happening in this program? Sure. So uh, the we've we've used another acronym uh, <laughs> to perhaps torture the the gear analogy even more. But one of the things that was very obvious to me when I got to government is at-risk capital from the private sector wasn't really being deployed to help government with its unique challenges in the areas of management. So we have folks in the the DOD realm who would be doing at-risk research around bandages that you could use in the field, and they have gift authority at the Pentagon that allows people to test and learn how do those things work. But there isn't an authority that allows us to test software as a service or take on some of these pilot programs that would be testing processes or procedures and working with intellectual property co-creation of activities, uh, working with folks that might want to monetize data to figure out how do we get that data in a form that's more easily used. And so the idea for this was really to say, how do we really focus research to be very practical in nature. So a lot of research in the management realm has been really policy-oriented and hasn't been operational in nature and certainly hasn't been something that could catalyze economic growth. And so when you think about the place we are in our economic cycle where we're shifting from the industrial age to the digital age, I wanted to make sure we were really being thoughtful about how do we catalyze the kind of digital growth we need in the whole economy by leveraging the right thinking, the right private sector thinking, the right academic thinking to help solve problems in government. Mm -hmm. Is there a schedule? Yes. Sorry, I didn't get to that. So um, we did an RFI and uh, uh, then we did a challenge. And the process has actually completed for the initial challenge. Our expectation is we will be making at least three challenge awards uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, And so depending on when this airs, uh, we may have already announced that. But for information about that, you can go to performance.gov. What are the key human capital challenges facing the U.S. federal government? We will ask Margaret Weikert, 
Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Margaret Weichert, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget. And also joining us from IBM is Andrew Fairbanks. So I want to get back to your um, Office of Personnel Management hat here for a second. Um, Interested in hearing more about what you see as the key workforce and human capital management uh, challenges that are facing the federal government today. Well, I'm actually going to start in my DDM hat because the the people gear is the critical pivotal gear that has actually affected our ability to modernize. And so a lot of the proposals around the workforce actually start with that notion of getting the right people in the right roles at the right time to do the mission and create the service and stewardship opportunities for government. And what was really clear when looking at our people mission is how deeply aligned it was to a very old set of realities. And so everything from how we hire into very narrowly defined jobs to how we do performance management and reward people for the work they're doing, and then ultimately how do we move people around and ensure they have the skills to respond to changes in the environment, all of those things were tied up in very old paradigms that were not flexible enough, not dynamic enough for the 21st century. You know, the gig economy, the uh, notion of reskilling, the notion of workforce of the future, all of these things are changing at just an amazing pace. What I do today and what I would expect to be doing even three years from now should not be the same because the missions are changing that fast. And yet we don't have the disciplines in government or the processes or the capabilities, uh, starting with the legislation, but all the way down to the technologies we rely on to move at the speed of the 21st century. So rooted in all of that is strategic human capital management requires us answering these very profound questions about how do we get the right people in the right jobs at the right time to do mission service and stewardship. And so we focused on three main things, hiring and bringing people into government, performance management, how do we actually reward performance based on merit Mm -hmm. versus a peanut butter approach that's sort of one size fits all and it doesn't matter if you're an absolute star curing cancer or you're essentially phoning it in, you get more or less the same reward at the end of the day. And then last but certainly not least, how do we move people around government so that we can cross-pollinate and get the right skills aligned for the 21st century jobs? What are some of the specific programs um, and approaches that you're taking to try to address those challenges? I think I'm most interested in the last one you mentioned, actually, seeing how much commonality there actually is across agencies and the challenges they face. How do you drive that that increased agility in terms of where people work? So we needed to start with what were some of the challenges to it. And I think one of the biggest challenges to agility was the notion that if you 
move people, they would not be set up for success or that moving people was some other form of a policy consideration. For example, uh, there's a lot of concern about making sure you have good employment opportunities in a in a geography, which is an absolutely important thing. It's something that we care about and Congress cares about. What we really need to do is to, to look at what are the actual skills and j- jobs and not equate today's jobs with what is possible in the future. And very often things like automation have gotten stopped because people fear what will happen to jobs, but they never go to the next step and say, how do we ensure that those same people have good jobs and we apply a training lens, we apply a skills lens to those people. And so there's a combination of activities that we're taking on to look at robotic process automation that frees up some time and energy and then reallocation, reskilling, upskilling so that people have more of the skills we need in the 21st century. We have huge gaps in hiring and can't find enough people to do many of our cybersecurity jobs, uh, IT jobs, law enforcement jobs. How do, if I automate and create some efficiencies there, bring those very same people who, by the way, already have background investigations, already have been vetted, we already know that they work here and want to work here. Good business practice says it's always cheaper to retrain than to hire from without. It always costs more to hire from without. And so we're doing things like the Cyber Reskilling Academy, where we've done uh, two pilot cohorts. You know, 50 people going through these trainings is just a drop in the bucket on what we actually need to do. But we've had overwhelming interest, overwhelming success. And the first cohort was wonderful because we took people from a range of grades, from grade 5, I think, up to grade 13, and none of the first cohort were in straight-up IT jobs mm-hmm. before. And we did an aptitude test, and the people who qualified performed better than any other group worldwide who had ever participated in this program. Mm-hmm. So our feds did an outstanding job, and we proved what I had hoped we would prove, which was you can take people, whether they're in a procurement job or they're in an admin job or they're, they're doing a processing job, and you can give them new skills that allow them to be part of our cyber defense capability. So we want to do more of that. We're looking for other important skills areas where we can do similar type programs, and we're working this year with agencies to essentially scale that so agencies themselves can take on a lot of that with their training dollars. Right. So like like you're just saying there, I think the rubber really hits the road at the agency or the component level. That's where the coaching happens. That's where the training happens. That's where the professional development happens. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what both OPM and OMB are doing to help support those agencies perform that coaching professional development function for their employees? So one of the things that was a major thought process that went behind the reform and reorganization plan that we proposed last year was the notion that we really needed to elevate our strategic human capital game to ask some of these questions. Mm -hmm. So how do I 
make it more programmatically capable? Um, how do I take my uh, HRS, my Human Resources Solutions organization, and create consulting capabilities that allow more agencies to not just think about relocating employees, but reskilling employees, getting you know the physical issue of where they live and what building they occupied integrated with how do I get them into the the new job if that's where they're going, and if they're not going, how do I get them into a better job where they actually are. And all of the integration around the skills aspects as well as the physical, where do I put people in what buildings, that's a great complement between GSA and OPM. That is an example of the kind of thing we need to do more of every day at scale. The second area of focus you had mentioned earlier was around performance management um, and engagement. What are some of the specific steps that you're taking to try to drive um, improvements both to employee management but to the, also the overall engagement of federal employees in, in terms of enjoyment of their work, pride in their work, et cetera? So when I look at the trust our workforce has in us and, and the value proposition we have for our workforce, at the very top of what our employees say in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is that they believe in the work they do. They think it's important, and they would go the extra mile in order to do that work. Our scores are over 90% in those two questions, and, and you cannot find parallels in the private sector like that. So that is really compelling. We have people here who want to do the right thing. Unfortunately, in the bottom category, our scores are very poor across government in how rewards are aligned with performance, how promotions are aligned with performance, and whether we deal with poor performers. So we have done a number of things around streamlining the dismissal process and making it more clear-cut. If somebody has abused the trust of the American people and their coworkers, that we can deal with that appropriately and effectively without it dragging on and affecting the broader organization with with whom someone might work. There are a number of executive orders that we've looked at to help improve our outcomes on that measure. When it comes to performance management, we actually have some budget proposals that are going in this year. We've had a number of proposals over the last couple of years, none of which have really excited the interest we think they should uh, on the Hill in order to align performance um, and, and total rewards. And we've been doing a number of things to benchmark how total rewards actually work in the private sector. You know, back to the last question we had, in the private sector, training is actually part of a total rewards package. Certifications, the ability to get access to unique programs, is something that you tend to align with your top performers. One of the other things we're doing is try to shift the focus. There's very much a hyper-focus on pay, and yet when you actually look at what really is valued by our workers and, and what they say in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is, you know, 61% of our feds believe they are fairly compensated, all things considered, which is a, a very, very strong number. In the private sector, you sort of shoot for 50%. Mm-hmm. 
but they don't think that they're getting the training. They don't necessarily think that they're getting the resources to the mission that they need. And so we're looking at things that could help with that as well. As you work with agencies across the government and you start thinking about what skills are going to be needed five years from now, as you skate towards that, where the puck's going to be, what are the biggest gaps right now that um, people who are hiring in the federal government are looking to close to be prepared for what they need in the future? So I, I think the biggest one that, that folks know about um, – they know in a functional sense around information technology, IT. Uh, so obviously we're, we're down from our hiring needs in the thousands. You know, we literally need thousands of additional IT workers. What I think sometimes goes missing is that no one can afford to move forward in the jobs of the future without basic understanding of IT. It's the platform by which we deliver our services. Maybe if you're a park ranger, you don't need so much IT knowledge, but most people who are working indoors in offices need to have a, a solid understanding not only of the technology they come in the door to work on, but they have to have the aptitude and the ability to constantly look at what tools might best enable their job over time because, you know, when I, I ask people, what apps do you have on your phone? You know, probably about 50% of the apps that you have that you use most often were there last year. But if you keep going back, you're going to find that number drops off significantly. And what is important and critical today might be irrelevant tomorrow and there might be three new things you've never thought about that are absolutely indispensable. And so that orientation, that ability to lean in and adapt is really important. Well, you're going to have to, I mean, it's a great example of the cybersecurity pipeline you're building with the innovation, but you're going to need to go outside, uh, obviously, to get folks in who have the right skills. But where I'm going with this is what, what's happening around um, expediting or expanding, rather, the new direct hiring authorities. Uh, what are these Where are they being used, and what's the plan to expand them further? So, we announced a number of direct hire authorities um, over the last 12 months uh, around STEM and IT. I think a lot of the very specific elements um, around cyber have been well known for a while. I think it's interesting. Even when we provide those direct hire authorities, uh, they're not, you know, sort of picked up and used in great quantity, I think, because the more different paths in we have, we have the, the challenge of sub-optimizing our, our pipelines in. And so one of the things that we're working on, even in tandem with the direct hire authorities, is there's actually a pilot that we've been working on at OPM along with the U.S. Digital Service to look at new ways of even how we do our competitive hiring to ensure that we're doing appropriate vetting but getting the most qualified people in the pipeline and not getting overwhelmed with sort of minimal qualifications that really aren't likely to rise to the top of the pile. So we're looking at some process improvements. Uh, we're looking at some technology assistance uh, in that realm and uh, have had some, some pretty good outcomes, we think, that help keep things in the competitive hiring 
realm as well. Obviously, you know, if you're looking for a real niche, you know, economist or other STEM career, the direct hiring authorities have been designed to help with that as well. Is there anything else you're doing in terms of helping agencies shorten the hiring authority, the process itself? So obviously, there's a a lot of things that we're doing with myth-busting. The Chief Human Resource Officer Council has been looking at a lot of activities that are minimally Mm value-added in the review process to ensure that within agencies, they're not adding steps that actually don't add value to the merit-based review process. And if there are process automation activities, so using macros or robotic process automation opportunities to streamline how we move people between stages in the process are other things that we're looking at. So before we leave the segment, I wanted to talk to you about the proposal that the administration has put forward of merging OPM and the General Services Administration. What's the rationale behind that proposal? What's the status? So the rationale is, uh, like most of the things that we looked at, we started with the key questions around how do we get the right people in the right jobs to meet the needs of the mission at the right time as efficiently and effectively as possible. And we looked around globally and here in the States to say, what are the leading practices? And almost no one in the entire world manages transactional HR, meaning the core elements of hiring and firing, a lot of the processing activities the way we do here in the federal government. Even in state governments, something like 35 state governments in the United States, including most of the most populous states in the U.S., New York, California, uh, Florida, Oklahoma, Michigan, manage the functions that OPM and GSA do today on an integrated basis under a single agency. My own parents worked since the 70s in the Office of General Services in New York. Um, My dad worked on the procurement side of that agency, and my mom worked on the people side. Mm -hmm. This is a very common construct. It saves on overhead, and it also aligns the major reality that when change comes to a business, people and places are affected at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the buildings that people work in change when the nature of the work changes and where that work needs to be done. And so thinking about those in combination are really important. You know, how we think about major changes that we've seen in how we manage our workforce, things like workforce development, remote work, uh, telework, alternative work arrangements. Who have the leaders actually been around that? OPM and GSA. Mm -hmm. And we don't work effectively enough today across those two agencies. We need to do more. On top of that, the IT infrastructure of OPM is currently benefiting greatly from the leadership and the transformation that GSA has already done to improve their technology stack, both the hardware, the software, and the talent. So the centers of excellence organizations like um, TTS and 18F are 
pipelines for bringing talent into government with tech skills, and that's something that we're taking advantage of right now. In terms of that pipeline for tech talent, one of the, some of the areas we've talked about, cybersecurity, et cetera, are very hot skills that really are commanding a premium in the market today. What types of innovations um, are you considering around compensation models for some of those hot skills uh, on which the government really relies? So I take a little bit different view on some of these issues in part because of my private sector background. So when you're a large organization like the federal government or in my past life like Bank of America, your hiring pool is effectively almost a proxy for the macro economy. So you have to look at, are there enough of those skills in the economy? And the answer is, there are not. And so for the federal government to get more than our fair share, Mm -hmm. because there aren't enough, and we can't afford not to fill these jobs, so we not only need to get our fair share, we need to get more than our fair share. What is going to motivate that, if it's in a market that has such scarcity, we will never be able to pay the top of the market. So I ask a different question. How might I get people who want to do my mission to have the skills to do it? So I start with that notion of I will never be able to pay the top of the market. And in a market that is, you know, we are just not graduating enough Americans. So in order to to work on this mission, We are not graduating enough Americans with the base minimum skills that we have today. But we do have North America's largest vocational training program in the form of the United States military. Mm -hmm. I actually have a lot of people who are getting trained in those skills. And disproportionately, I hire veterans into the government. So I need to think differently about how do I get more than my fair share of people with the right aptitude and potential to come to me to get upskilled. And I could have economies of scale in that upskilling. So I don't necessarily have to pay market rate if I help people get those skills. That's enlightened self-interest. And I also don't think we have another choice because there aren't enough, we can't grow 18-year-olds with these skills (laughs) faster. So I need to I need to kind of figure it out myself. You know, if you think about what we did with the moonshot, we didn't have enough people with the skills we needed to do what we did in the 60s. We grew them. And where did we grow them from? The military. How are private sector practices being leveraged to deliver government solutions in the 21st century? We will ask Margaret Weikert, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Margaret Weikert, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget. And also joining us from IBM is Andrew Fairbanks. So getting back to your time in in private sector, um, I'm interested in hearing you you speak a little bit more about what types of private sector practices you're incorporating into the agenda for for the federal government uh, for the 21st century. And what can be done in those instances where federal agencies may lack the foundational capacity to adopt and use those best practices to get them ready? 
Uh, so some of the things I'm using are really pretty basic. So the notion of toll gates mm-hmm. is, you know, I used it in in the banking industry. It was a pretty common practice to toll gate mergers and acquisitions, but basically most allocation of capital, uh, major project-oriented activities, you know, stage gate processes are, are pretty common in the private sector. There's very little stage gate or toll gating that I've seen in government where you actually bring everyone together to sit around a table and make decisions, even if you've had a lot of position memos beforehand. Mm-hmm. My observation in government is its decision by memo, which is really hard to do quickly. Whereas if you get the facts together and you have a structured process for making decisions and you have the principals sitting around the table and talking through the trade-offs, that could save months of back and forth between staffers. It's an uncomfortable process for people who are used to having meetings that are largely scripted meetings, but it is critical, and I think we've had a lot of success in the background investigation transition. What was taking a lot of time at the beginning is now working like clockwork, because whenever we have any kind of challenge or resource allocation issue, we're getting and sitting at the table, and we're talking about it, and we're getting the right people in the room, everybody from the principals to the lawyers to the finance people in the room to kind of hash it out in person so that we can move on and, and, you know, go to the next step. One of the other innovations I've seen come about over the last five years is the move to, to acquisition strategies like other, tra- other transactional authorities, which are enabling agencies to move out much more quickly with, POs, with points of or proof of concept and pilots, and then the ability, once that proof of concept is borne out, to move forward on a sole source basis with the implementation of that program. Um, what's your view in terms of the overall acquisition process, whether that's a trend we'll see continue or other kinds of innovations we may bring into the model? I like some of the elements of that. You know, the places I observe where the OTAs have been effective are the places where every exception uh, tends to be effective because, you know, the the nature of the mission, you know, so whether it's defense or the intelligence community, um, a lot of that latitude is frequently given in a way that doesn't seem to translate to the rest of government. So I, I'm a little concerned about that. The place I see the biggest hope is the more we understand if the goal of the original legislation was transparency in pricing, let's look at what's evolved to do transparency in pricing in the 21st century. Things like markets, things like you know real-time marketplaces are, are very good at that. So I'm, I'm bullish about those. There's still a lot of skepticism about that. You know, I think there are a lot of places where gift authority needs to evolve in a software as a service environment. If I can only accept gifts of goods, uh, it makes it difficult for me to test and learn apps mm-hmm. or, you know, get process kind of feedback about new agile, you know, capabilities. Uh, so those are things that, that I'm thinking a lot about. And I'm thrilled that we have our new OFPP administrator on board to help think even more deeply about um, innovation in this space. So, Margaret, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I think start with something, a, a challenge or a question that 
really motivates you. What do you see from where you sit that you could add value to your to your country? I really feel like this was a call to service, and I had never really thought about, you know, I'm a bit of a klutz, so I never really thought I would serve in the military. And when I was asked to serve with skills around management, you know, it had never occurred to me, and it's been a profound privilege to work on the issues that I'm working on, and I feel like those are the the skills that I have, and maybe the you know the skills that are most important from the private sector are the belief that it's possible you can get to a solution. There's always a way to think through uh, the opportunity, and then to not feel that technology or people or finance can be a barrier, but that those could be enablers to that possibility. Well, thanks for your time. And more importantly, Andrew and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, it's my pleasure. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Margaret Weikert, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget. My co-host from IBM has been Andrew Fairbanks. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, an in-depth conversation exploring the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.